Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am intending in this audio to teach from Romans 10 verse 12 to the end of the chapter verse 21. I have chosen to entitle this section of scripture, The Importance of Preaching the Gospel to Both Jews and Gentiles. That's the theme of what Paul's going to talk about here. Our context is this, in the first 11 verses of Romans 10, Paul has returned to his topic of justification, which he's he brought up at the end of chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 5, he was talking about justification. And now, in the beginning of chapter 10, having talked about sanctification in chapters 6, 7, and 8, he's now returning to justification in chapter 10, and he's saying that this righteousness that we get by justification comes by faith alone. That's another one of his recurring themes. Righteousness, justification apart from the law. And Paul also mentions in that first section of Romans 10 his concern for the Jews who have not believed, and he attempts to explain why the Jews' unbelief does not nullify the promises of God to Abraham when God promised Abraham land, offspring, and blessings to the nation. The reason that God's promise didn't fail is that promise to Abraham was fulfilled by believing Gentiles, because now Abraham is the father of us all, including the Gentiles. And so the problem of Jew and Greek is going to be mentioned here also in verses 12 through 21. So with that background, let's begin Romans 10, verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, since the same Lord of all is rich to all who call on him. No distinction? Well, obviously there's some distinctions between Jews and Greeks, or Jews and Gentiles. But as far as salvation is concerned, there are there is no difference. We both believe by faith and not by the works of the law. Now Paul continues to emphasize this. The Jews continued to emphasize the law, which they had and the Gentiles did not. And they were saying, we've got the law, so therefore we're saved. And those dirty dog Gentiles are not saved. And Paul's saying, no. Is both Jew and Gentile. There's no distinction. You're saved by your belief. You believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, and then you confess with your mouth that Jesus rose from the dead, and you believe. And Gentiles can do that as well as Jews. Now, this idea that there's no distinction between Jew and Greek is everywhere in the Scriptures. For example, in John 12, verse 32, John says this, As for me, Jesus is talking, As for me, Jesus, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all to myself, or all people to myself, as the Holman Christian Study Bible has, all people to myself. Now, does all people refer to all people without exception, so that everybody is saved? Well, of course not. It doesn't refer to all people without exception. It refers to all people without distinctions. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. Now, God is said to be rich to all those who call upon him. Jameson, Foss, and Brown say that that term rich is a favorite Pauline term to express the exuberance of that saving grace which is in Christ Jesus. We go now to verse 13 of Romans 10. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now Paul is quoting here Joel 2.32, which I'll read now. Then everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved, for there will be an escape for those on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, as the Lord promised, among the survivors the Lord calls. Now, this apparently is, Joel is referring to those during the siege of of Jerusalem in the Jewish war by the Romans, 66 to 70 AD. I think the particular event that Joel is prophesying about is those Jews who fled to Pella when Jesus said, look around you when you see the abomination that causes desolation, i.e. the Roman army surrounding the city, escape. And they were allowed to escape because the fanatic zealot Jews in Jerusalem went to chase the Roman general Cestus who had besieged the 
city of Jerusalem, surrounded it, and Cestus had inexplicably withdrawn. The crazy Jews went after Cestus, and then the Christian Jews left Jerusalem and headed to Pella, and not a one of them died. And so, if that's true, that fits pretty well with Joel 2.32. Everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved, for there will be an escape for those on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. There was an escape. When you see the abomination of desolation, head full of hills. As the Lord promised among the survivors, the Lord calls. Okay? Now, Paul is quoting that scripture here, not talking about the physical deliverance of the believing Christian Jews in A.D. 66, or 67, whenever it was. I think it was 66. But Paul is talking about salvation spiritually. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now he's taking, he's making a spiritual application of it. You will be born again. In other words, you will be regenerated. Peter also quoted Joel 2.32 on the first Pentecost in the sense of being saved spiritually. Acts 2.21, Peter's Pentecostal sermon. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Here's a quote from Steve Ackerson. It is to look to him for salvation, to actively trust in Christ and not self-effort or the works of the law. It is the difference between believing in a chair and sitting in a chair. It is applied faith. In other words, when you believe in Jesus, you're going to call on his name to save you, and you're going to believe he's going to save you. It's like the guy that wants to cross Niagara Falls on a tightrope carrying a chair in his hand. He said, I can carry people in this chair. And you objectively say, yeah, oh, yeah, sure, I know you can do that. And then the guy says, well, why don't you sit in the chair and let me carry you across Niagara Falls? Well, if you get in the chair, that means you believe. That's the kind of belief that Paul's talking about here. Romans 10, verse 14. But how can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? Now, we need to get some context here. All four of these rhetorical questions are designed to show Jews that they had every chance to believe the gospel. And what's happening here is Paul is trying to defend himself against Jews who say, well, you know, we don't believe. There's lots of Jews who don't believe, and therefore what you're saying is God's promise to the Jews have failed because they don't believe in this gospel, this false Messiah, Jesus. But those promises are still available. They're going to be fulfilled later in the physical Jews. And, and now you're trying to hijack Abraham's promises to make them fulfilled with spiritual Jews, with Gentiles. And how can you blame Paul? You keep talking about there's such a few people. You quote verses from Isaiah saying only a remnant has believed. How can you complain about us Jews not believing? For after all, we didn't hear about him. We didn't have a preacher. So how can we call on the name of the Lord to get saved in your sense? So let's read each question as if it were from a mocker. But how can they call on him who they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? Come on, Paul, give us a break. Well, Paul's going to answer those mocking questions. He's going to show that, yes, the Jews have had preachers preaching to the Jews, and they should have listened. Notice that Paul is saying that if you're going to believe you need a preacher, and this cuts against all forms of hyper-Calvinism, predestination does not cut against the need for evangelism in any way. Paul talked about predestination in chapter 9, the famous chapter 9 passage about Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, and I chose Jacob in his mother's womb before he did any works. Yeah, he talked about predestination in chapter 9, but now in chapter 10 he immediately talks about the need for preaching. There is no contradiction. I would say that to Arminians as well as hyper-Calvinists. There's no need to create a false dichotomy. I believe in predestination, but I, by golly, I believe in witnessing too. Romans 10:15. And how can they preach unless they are sent? Again, this is another mocking question. Why, how can you blame us Jews for not believing? Nobody sent us any preachers. 
Paul continues in verse 15, Romans 10, As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who announce the gospel of good things. Now, what Paul is doing here is says, Ah, there's some, been some beautiful feet walking to you Jews, namely yours truly, Paul. I preach to you. The Jews can't say to Paul, we have no opportunity. Don't blame us. And Paul said, I'm preaching to you. Paul preached to the Jews all the time. Read the book of Acts. And what did they do? They constantly mocked him, stoned him, turned him over to the Romans for judicial process. So Paul is starting to answer these mocking questions right there, right here. He first quotes Isaiah 52, 7. Let me read that. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald who proclaims peace, who brings news of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now this is referring to unnamed heralds who bring the good news to the exiles in Babylon about their impending release from Babylon and their return to Israel. This was Cyrus's decree, 539 B.C., the emperor of Persian emperor Cyrus, who controlled Babylon at that time. He's going to let the captives go. And so this is probably a herald from Cyrus saying, go back to Jerusalem, no problem. So Paul takes that piece of typological history and applies it to, the, to those preaching release of captivity from sin. He takes those heralds back in the time of the Babylonian captivity and he applies that to people who are preaching to the Jews and saying, you're released from your sin, just like you got released, physically released from captivity in Babylon. Now you're released from your sin. How beautiful that is. Now, it was not Paul's motive to show the importance of evangelism here. But incidentally, this verse does show the importance of evangelism. It's beautiful to announce the gospel of good things. We go to Romans 10, verse 16. But all did not obey the gospel, Paul continues. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Now, Paul is trying to say, look, it's not only New Testament Jews who don't believe in Jesus. The Old Testament Jews didn't believe either. But God's promises didn't fail because of their hard-heartedness. So Paul is going to quote some Old Testament authority to show that the Jews have always been unbelieving. So quit blaming the fact that you don't have a preacher preaching to you, you, you've been rebellious and stubborn all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the Hebrew Scriptures. So quit blaming me. Quit blaming God because, because very few people believe in the, in the gospel. And don't say that the Abrahamic promises haven't been fulfilled because so very few people have believed the gospel. Stop that. So he starts on this t task by quoting Isaiah. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? And of course, that's a rhetorical question, meaning nobody's believed it, or, or not very many have believed it. So Paul is returning to his main theme here, that the Israel's rejection of the gospel was not God's fault, and more particularly, that it wasn't for lack of preachers that Israel rejected. That's what he's trying to say. So he quotes Isaiah 53.1. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up, that's the Messiah, grew up before him, before the Lord, before Yahweh, like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Now, this is the famous suffering servant passage, and it's a prediction of the Messiah, not a glorious political Messiah riding on a white horse to, to clobber the Romans. No, this is the picture of Jesus suffered, suffering on a cross, as suffering as a criminal. He had no beauty or majesty, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And that explains why in verse 1 of Isaiah 53, verse 1, nobody's believed our message. The arm of the Lord was revealed to them through the Messiah, but they didn't believe it. And so Paul is saying, hey, just like Isaiah, I, what Paul is saying is, look, Isaiah predicted this lack of unbelief on the part of the Jews. He predicted it. 
So don't be surprised that the gospel I preach, don't think that the gospel I preach is somehow contradictory to God's will because the Jews don't believe in Jesus. The Old Testament says the Jews weren't going to believe in Jesus. Your own Hebrew scriptures say that. I think that Isaiah himself was probably referred to the first century rejection of the Jews because Isaiah 53.1 obviously refers to the Messiah, to, to Jesus. And so when Isaiah says in verse 1, who has believed our message, that's probably referring to the rejection of the Jews in the New Testament. So Paul's got good prophecy back up here to show that, it, of course, his message is not going to believe. It was prophesied. It was, it was prophesied. If that's the case, then Paul's quotation of Isaiah 53.1 is right on point. Paul did not obey the gospel, so quit complaining to me because the Jews don't believe. As Adam Clark says, this proves that therefore it wasn't God's fault for the Jews' unbelief. It was the people who didn't believe the message. The message was preached to them through the Messiah, according to Isaiah, and then it wasn't believed, and that's the whole point. Paul's saying, look, we preached you the message, my dear Jewish brethren, but you didn't believe, so don't blame me. Blame yourselves. You didn't believe. Romans ten seventeen. So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes from comes through the message about Christ. Now, other translations have, instead of message about Christ, the KGV has the word of God. The NIV has the word of Christ, but it's basically the gospel. So if you want faith, the gospel's got to be preached because somebody's got to hear it. The message about Christ, the word of God, can either be the scriptures, as John Gill says, or it could be preaching by the evangelist. I don't believe it's necessary to make such a big distinction because the preaching by evangelist is going to use the scripture. I mean, why make a dichotomy there? But at any rate, the message about Christ fits in well with verse 15 when Paul says, How beautiful are the feet of those who announce the gospel of good things. And in verse 17, he says, Faith comes from what is heard because those beautiful messengers announcing good things. And so now those good things can be heard. The gospel can be heard and therefore faith is engendered. We go to verse 18 of Romans 10. But I ask, did they not hear? Talking about the Jews. Did the Jews not hear the gospel? Is it our fault that we didn't preach so that they didn't hear? Paul answers that rhetorical question. Yes, they did. In other words, yes, they heard. And then he quotes a psalm. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the inhabited world. The psalm he's quoting is Psalm 19.4. Their message has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun. Now the there in psalms is referring to the heavenly bodies, the heavens of God's natural handiwork. That's the subject of that psalm. But Paul takes the there and switches it to the messengers of the gospel, the evangelist preaching the gospel, their voice has gone out to all the earth. So just as in the Old Testament, natural revelation is everywhere available to those who would look at it and listen to it. Likewise, special revelation in, in the New Testament has gone out to all the earth so that people might believe in that. So don't blame me. Don't say, Jews, that you, you didn't have the gospel preached to you because you did. And it says here, there, the voice of evangelist has gone out to the ends of the inhabited world. That's a Greek word there that's often translated as Roman Empire. And that's what it's referring to. And as a matter of fact, the gospel went out all through the Roman Empire. And there were Jews everywhere in the Roman Empire, all through Asia Minor especially. And they heard the gospel. Paul always went to the synagogues first. And then he went to the Jews when the Jews acted like horses rears and mocked him or stoned him or took him before the Jewish magistrates. We go to verse 19 of Romans 10. But I ask, Paul continues, did Israel not understand? 
And so now the objection to Israel could say, well, you know, okay, Paul, we concede that there were preachers. You preached to us, and we concede that we heard the word, but you can't blame us. This is too complicated for us. We can't understand that kind of stuff. Well, let me just say, Paul doesn't take this route, but how could you not understand it? How could you read Isaiah 53 and not understand it? How could you read Micah about being born in Bethlehem? Or a virgin shall conceive, all, or a stump shall, a root shall come out of the stump of Jesse. I mean, there's so many messianic scriptures that any moron would understand if, they, if their heart wasn't full of sin and rebellion. But Paul doesn't take that route. He says, look, you Jews say you don't understand. Well, guess what? The Gentiles didn't understand either, and they're believing. And if those dumb Gentiles can believe, why can't you smart Jews believe? So let me start with verse 19 again. But I asked, did Israel not understand first? Moses said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that lacks understanding. And of course, those who are not a nation are Gentiles. A nation that lacks understanding is Gentiles. And Paul says, I'm going to make you jealous of the Gentiles. And that was predicted in your, in your Hebrew scriptures. By Moses himself said that you are going to reject the gospel and you're going to be jealous of the Gentiles who do believe in the gospel. And by the way, when he says first, he means I'm going to quote Moses first, and then I'm going to quote Isaiah to the same effect, that your lack of unbelief, Jews, was predicted in the Old Testament. Now, it is implied that the Gentiles have understanding. Paul doesn't explicitly say it here, it, that they understand, but that's his point. They, they understand. And again, the point is, if the Gentiles, who had no natural spiritual advantages, if they understood, why shouldn't the Jews understand? This idea of the Gentiles making Israel jealous, Paul picks up again in the next chapter, Romans 11, verse 11. I ask then, have they stumbled in order to fall, the, the Jews? Absolutely not. On the contrary, by that stumbling, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Romans 11, verse 13 through 14. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles in view of the fact that I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry if I can somehow make my own people jealous and save some of them. Of course, it was a few of them, but Paul is constantly, he wants to save them. But he says the way I'm going to save them is I'm going to let them look at all the great spiritual benefits that are flowing to the Gentiles. And then the Jews are going to look at that and become jealous of those spiritual benefits. And they're going to say, wow, those Gentiles are living a happy life with God. And their sins are washed away, and they're, and they're living changed lives. And here we are, under the Roman, uh, the, the Mosaic law, doing our best to try to be righteous, and we can't. We're just condemning ourselves and showing how unholy we are. That's how the Jews are going to be jealous. Now, why does Paul say that the Gentiles were not a nation? Because the Gentiles were not formed into a nation by God like the Jews were. They had no covenant relationship with God. They had no prophets. They had no temple. They had nothing. Now, it's ironic that the Jews think that the Gentiles lack understanding because actually in this case they do have understanding, those that believe in Jesus. Now I failed to quote you the verse from Moses that Paul was quoting here, so let me do that now. Deuteronomy 32 verse 21, they have made me jealous, that's the, the Jews, they have made me jealous with what is no God, they have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people, that's the Gentiles. I will make them, the Jews, jealous with those who are no people, the Gentiles. I will provoke them, the Jews, to anger with a foolish nation, the Gentiles. So Moses said exactly the same thing that Paul was saying, and Adam Clark says this, quote, This verse, talking about Deuteronomy 32:21, this verse contains a very pointed promise of the calling of the Gentiles in consequence of the rejection of the Jews. And to this great event, it is applied by St. Paul in Romans 
So now both Moses and Isaiah predict that the Gentiles would would understand when the Jews did not. Moses in Deuteronomy 32:21, I'm going to make them jealous. I'm going to make the Jews jealous with what the Gentiles have. And I, and Isaiah in the next verse, verse 20. But before we get there, let's take up this phrase, angry. I will make you angry. God will make the Jews angry by a nation that lacks understanding. Because God gives spiritual privileges to the Gentiles, the Jews get angry. And folks, they've been angry ever since. They're angry now. They're angry today. Because the typical Orthodox Jew believes that salvation to the world comes through them. They were angry when Paul wrote Romans. They've been angry ever since Jesus, when Jesus came. And then when Paul came along, they got angry at Paul, and now they're angry now. The exclusivistic Jews thought their salvation belonged only to the Jews. Now, I will say, I just, by coincidence, read an article by an Orthodox Jew who said some very nice things about evangelical Christians about the same social ethic. Ironically, it was in a, a, a post, an article, I should say, saying that Jews and evangelical Christians ought together to support that great uniter Donald Trump, <laughs> which was kind of amazing. Apparently, Trump's pulling about 70% of Orthodox Jews in most polls. So I guess that Orthodox Jews and Christians have not always been at each other's throats. But I will say this, back in the time of Martin Luther, when Martin Luther wrote all those terrible things about the Jews, people you know, are embarrassed by what Luther said, but they don't really ever look at what provoked Luther. I mean, the rabbis in, in Luther's time were saying, Jesus, the Son of God, is boiling in a pot of excrement in hell. Well, that's something that sort of is not very unifying. The Jews back then were not saying to Martin Luther, let's reach our hands across the aisle and come together for the greater good. No, they've been angry about Jesus. And so sometimes it's hard to witness to Jews. But it must be done. Jesus has already predicted what Paul was talking about, that the Jewish nation was going to be rejected. In this parable of the vineyard, Luke 20, verses 15 through 16, So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him, the son of the owner, vineyard owner. Therefore, who what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Of course, the, the one that was thrown out was Jesus. And the owner is God. What will he do to them? He will come and destroy those farmers and give the vineyard to others. Well, the vineyard was given to the Gentiles and taken away from the Jews. But when they heard this, they said, no, never. Well, they've been saying no, never, ever since. But it's happened. The only way a Jew's going to get back into the good graces of God and back into the kingdom is by being grafted back into the olive tree, by believing in faith that Jesus has saved them from their sins. And fortunately, there are a lot of Jews who are doing that. Just like there's a lot of Muslims doing that these days. Thank God. Romans 10:20, and Isaiah says boldly, I was found by those who are not looking for me. I reveal myself to those who are not asking for me. So now he's gone for Moses. That's why he said first Moses and now Isaiah. I'm going to quote verses to the same intent, which is that God went, is going to the Gentiles, whether you Jews like it or not, and you're going to get jealous of that. So Isaiah says, I was found by those who were not looking for me. That's referring to Gentiles who were not looking for God. The Jews were with all their oracles and laws and temples and tabernacles and rituals and sacrifices. They were looking for God. The Gentiles weren't. And then Isaiah says, I reveal myself to those who are not asking for me. That again is referring to the Gentiles. This is a quote from Isaiah 65, 1. Let me read that. I was sought by those who did not ask. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am. Here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. And the Isaiah clearly says there that, he's, that God calls out to the Gentiles. So, 
exclusivistic Jewish rabbis. How do you answer that one? <laughs> now, notice that Isaiah says that God is revealed to those who are not asking. Hmm, I think if you're an Arminian, you know, I got to seek God, I got to seek God, I got to seek God, he's not going to show himself to me. An Arminian, an answer to that might be say, well, wait a minute now, you know, Isaiah appeared to those to people who weren't asking for him. On the other hand, a hyper-Calvinist might say, well, we don't need to preach the gospel because it's no, no use because they're not looking for God. Well, the scriptures clearly say that non-believers are supposed to seek God. Hebrews 11:6, second part of the verse. And without faith, it is impossible, impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who do what? Those who seek him. Matthew 6:33. But do what? Do what? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So Jesus tells people who apparently are not believers, he's preaching to them, he says, Seek first the kingdom of God. In Matthew 7, 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Jesus says, Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. So again, how do you put those two things together? Well, as Albert Barnes Albert Barnes, the commentator, says the Gentiles would not seek God until they had the gospel preached to them. And then, or at least some of them, then they would seek God. And so the point here is not that, you're not that Gentiles don't seek for God. Because looking at it from our human viewpoint, of course we seek for God. Of course it's all been predestined before the foundation of the world. If you're in the elect that you're going to seek for God, but we won't get into that. But obviously, from our human point of view, we're supposed to seek God. And we're not going to seek God until the gospel's preached to us. So before the gospel is preached to the average Gentile, he ain't looking for God. Every now and then one of them might look at the stars and say, hmm, there's a God out there. But most of the time, you know, Gentiles aren't seeking God. But you preach the gospel to them, and then you arouse curiosity in them, and then they, some of them accept. And that's what we've, we've been doing ever since. Now Paul says, Isaiah boldly said, I was found by those who were not looking for me. I revealed myself to those who were not asking for me. As Paul quotes Isaiah in Romans 10:20, Isaiah says boldly, why was that bold? Because to say that God is revealing himself to Gentiles is going to make Jews real angry. Like Paul just said in the previous verse, they've been angry. They're angry. Moses says, I'm going to make you angry. I'm going to make you Jews angry because of the nations that lack understanding. And Isaiah, when he says the same thing, is asking for the same treatment. People, Orthodox Jews are going to be mad at Isaiah, angry at him for saying that God reveals himself to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. So since they're going to be angry, it takes a bold prophet like Isaiah to say the truth, what God had revealed to him. Most everything God revealed through the prophets took courage to preach. That's why prophets are the most bold people on earth, because they're constantly bringing forth words from God that people do not want to hear because of our hard-heartedness and our sin. We move on to Romans 10, verse 21. Paul continues, But to Israel, he says, All day I have spread out my hands to a disobedient and defiant people. And again, he's quoting, well, actually, he's not quoting an Old Testament scripture here, but what he's saying is, he's saying, Look, you people are disobedient. You Jews are defiant. It is your fault that very few people believe in the Abrahamic promises and the fulfillment of those promises by Jesus the Messiah. It is your fault that you don't believe. It's not God's fault because all day long, 24-7, God has spread out his hands to you and says, come to me, come to me, and you don't listen. 
you know, this idea of God spreading out his hands to Israel, it's really expressed well in Matthew 23, verses 37 and 38. This is Jesus on the Via Dolorosa on the way to being crucified. He says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, she who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, yet you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, referring to the temple, which is going to get destroyed in AD 70. Jesus said, I wanted to gather you together, but you were not willing. It's your fault, Israel, that you don't believe in Jesus. You stoned him. You stoned the prophets. You stoned Jesus. And now you're complaining because you didn't get a, a message preached to you in order to make you believe? Come on. I said Paul didn't really quote an Old Testament scripture. Actually, at least he made an allusion. He might not be quoting it directly, but he made a, an allusion to Isaiah 65 too. I spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people, Isaiah says. Speaking for God, I, God, spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the wrong path, following their own thoughts. And of course, that is, again, the Old Testament referring to those rebellious Jews. So Paul makes a pretty strong case here verse Romans 10. It's not my fault that I didn't preach the gospel. It was my, I brought some beautiful feet walking on the mountains, announcing good news to you, and you didn't listen. So let's get off of this thing of blaming me are blaming God for not for there being such a few Jews being saved. I want the Jews to be saved. I would, if I could, I would almost want to be cursed and go to hell to get the Jews saved. But they're not listening. If you have friends and loved ones who have the same attitude as I do, and a lot, everybody does, their unbelief is so bad and so deep-rooted that I suggest to you that you better pray that God will open their heart like Paul opened Lydia's heart in Acts 17. God opens their heart, preach to them, evangelize them, but just realize they are sunk in their sin, and there ain't no way they're going to believe until God opens their heart first. Irresistible grace, the eye and tulip. All right, with that, I am finished with Romans chapter 10. We'll take up Romans chapter 11 in the next audio. In chapter 11, Paul will continue with this idea of why have the Jews not believed, and he says, well, actually, there's a remnant of Jews who has believed. That's the first part of chapter 11. Then we get to chapter 12. He'll talk about the believing Gentiles. They also believe too, and they're spiritual Israel. So the remnant of physical believing Jews fulfills Abraham's promise as well as the Gentiles, the spiritual Jews who believe in Jesus. We'll do that next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one.